Father, I ask right now that you would govern the hearts of the saints. Father, that our thoughts would be on you this morning. Father, that our hopes would be on you. Lord, that we would have an allegiance to the word of God this morning. Father, that you would use it to search the deepest and darkest recesses of our soul. Father, would you give us an attraction to your word? Would you make it so that it's a well that is reviving our soul, that is replenishing us where we need it most? Would you make us zealous for truth? Would you cause us to hope and delight in truth this morning? Father, would you inhabit the worship of your people as they now worship in truth, as they receive, subject themselves, and respond to the word of God? Protect me from error, Lord. Set a door over my mouth if I should say something that is not right or if I should say something that's born out of ill motives. And Lord, be gracious to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me back up a little bit to set you guys up properly in Matthew. So if you have your Bible, you can turn to Matthew chapter seven. And we're working our way through the Sermon on the Mount, about to be finished with it. And then we'll start the book of Philippians. I believe we told you that. If not, there you have it. We're going to start the book of Philippians. Great book, a book on joy, a book that is doctrinally rich, and a book that won't take us a year to get through. So it's going to be good, right? So we're in Matthew chapter 7. Let me back up because I told you last week that I could have easily combined these two sections of Scripture uh, to make one sermon. Instead, I wanted to break them up, and I had a specific way that I wanted to break them up. And evidently, I'm racing technology today because I have a, a little bit of battery left here and a little bit of battery left on my phone. Uh, so I've got two ways to grab my sermon from Dropbox, and both of those ways are very short on battery life. So for you, I'm going to have to move rather quickly. So no applause, please. We will get through this thing, all right? So backing up to last week, let me just read this. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruit. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Notice those are two very strong statements. Let me repeat those. Okay, these are the words of Christ. And these are going to come into play in a, in a very weighty fashion as we get into today's text. So listen to this again. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit. A bad tree or a diseased tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will... Enter the kingdom of, uh, of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father 
On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and perform mighty works or deeds in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness or you workers of iniquity. He says, you'll know them by their fruits, which isn't as easy or as straightforward as it seems, and I'll get into that in a moment, but I wanna share this with you. Things aren't always as they seem, are they? He says there will be wolf, wolves that come in in sheep's clothing. So outwardly, you're seeing these fruits. Outwardly, you're seeing what, what could be the byproduct of a healthy root. But how do you know? If people are making morally upright decisions, how do you know? How do you know that it's a diseased root? And it gets complex for me anyway as I'm studying through this passage. But I wanna share something with you from the beginning just to kind of illustrate this. Many years ago, I was at a friend of mine's house. His name is Todd Clark, and Todd's an old family friend. Grew up together, went backpacking together, all those fun things. Before he got married, and since he's been married, he bought a house out in Alabama, out in the backwoods, the back country of Alabama. I mean, the definition. The definition of hillbilly, okay, or, or redneck. I know they're two different things. Even though he's not so much like that, but where he lives, it's like that. But it was just... It was just a, a, an, a, a, a grown man's fun house because not only did he have PlayStation, Xbox, and all those fun things, and me and some buddies would go spend the night with him as a bachelor, but he also had all this land, and he had four-wheelers, and he had tractors, and he had all these things, and we would, we would ride around on four-wheelers. We had this big bog that we would ride and do mud riding, and that's really the only mud riding I did. That's about as redneck as it got for me growing up, but we would go out there, and we would mud ride and get entrenched up to our ankles while sitting or standing on the four-wheeler. And it was just a fun time. And Todd was notorious for, as we're riding through the trails, at night, by the way, as we're riding through the trails, Todd uh, would, would, would jump out of nowhere. And that was a part of the fun. Is, I mean, he would risk being run over by a four-wheeler, obviously, but we would be riding sometimes fast, sometimes slow, and all of a sudden, Todd's either coming up behind you and grabbing you and trying to pull you off the four-wheeler, which that's fun, right? Or he would jump right in front of you as to scare you. And it was always an exciting time to be out there playing around with Todd. Now, one particular evening, I had a bunch of friends go over there to spend the night, just kind of to pull an all-nighter, you know, playing PlayStation, you know, drinking Mountain Dews and eating a lot of junk food. This is probably, uh, I, I think I was actually in college at this time, maybe late high school, but I think I was in college. So for a Friday night, we went and we just had fun at Todd's house. And Todd had the idea of let's play hide and go seek on the four-wheelers. And we had borrowed some four-wheelers, so we had three or four of them on, the, on location. And Todd said, let's play hide and go seek. I'm like, how do you play hide and go seek on four-wheelers? No, no, it was hide-and-go-seek slash tag. He's like, I was like, how do you do that on a four-wheeler? And, I, and I'm thinking in my brain, there's only one way, but I'm hoping he, not, he doesn't say that, right? So it basically turns into bumper cars. If you're found and then you're rammed into, ha-ha, tag, you're it, right? So that was the idea. We'd go and hide, and then if someone would find us, they'd chase us on a four-wheeler, then it became this chase. Now, incredibly dangerous. I get that, right? Incredibly dangerous. If my son were to say to me one day, Daddy, I'm going to go and do this. I'm like, well, you're a fool. That's not going to happen because that's extremely dangerous. You're not going to play tag on four-wheelers, right? I didn't tell my mom what I was doing or what I was not doing. We just went and we did it, right? So sometimes, maybe it plays out a little bit better when you ask for forgiveness rather than permission, you know? So that's not your pastor teaching you that kind of ideology. That's just the ideology I had at the time, right? And you've heard that before. So I thought, well, let's just do this and see how it pans out. If I end up in the emergency room, my mom will know, and then I'll get what I deserve. So we're playing, we're playing hide and go seek on these four-wheelers, 
And it's me and my best buddy, Jeremy Westbrook. I called him Worm. There's a whole story to that name, but called him Worm, so I'm going to refer to him as Worm. I recently performed his wedding, and to not say Worm at the wedding was very difficult for me, but I managed to get by with just saying Jeremy. So Jeremy and I are Worm and I are on the four-wheeler, and we got a nice little bottom that we've, that we've, that we've kind of nestled into uh, in the woods. I mean, we're in the thick part of the woods, and we hear four-wheelers driving by up above the little trench that we have found ourselves in, and they're driving by trying to find us, you know, and there's really basically a time limit. It was unofficial. If they hadn't found you in a while, it's like, all right, give up so we can continue the game and have some fun rather than people sitting out and just waiting. So Worm and I were nestled down in the trench really well, and the guys are riding around trying to find us. Nobody can find us. Five minutes, 10 minutes, 15 minutes. You might want to pull back my microphone a little bit. 20 minutes, maybe even 30 minutes pass by. And then we just don't hear anything anymore. And it's real quiet. That's pitch black dark, pitch black dark. You can't see the hand in front of your face. But we're sitting there on the four-wheeler. It's quiet. We're listening for folks. Things have, things have really quietened down. You can hear things in the forest. But there was something that stood out a little more than the rest as far as what we could hear. You know, it was just the noise of what sounded like someone walking. Just Austin's the sound effect guy, but there you are, right? So something's walking. And we're like, okay, what, what's, what's going on behind us? You know, I mean, it's pitch black, dark, we can't see anything. Now, what did I tell you that Todd was accustomed to doing, jumping out and scaring us, right? Now, we knew that most likely it was Todd, and most likely Todd was going to grab us and pull someone off the four-wheeler, and somebody's going to get punched in the face, and it's going to be a great time. You know, we knew something was going to happen, so we're just kind of bracing ourselves and waiting, and time just kept going by, and then we'd hear it inching a little bit closer, but it was getting closer nonetheless. I mean, it was absolutely making its way to us. It may have started out somewhere close to Jamie's uh, Dodge out there, and then it finally got its way to where it was about me to Evan. Me to Evan, okay? Does that, does that compute? It's dark. We're bracing ourselves for someone to grab us. We really don't hear anything anymore. We think it's a conspiracy. Like, okay, just brace yourself. We're whispering to each other, it's Todd, it's Todd, it's Todd, it's Todd, you know? And we thought, well, maybe it's an armadillo, maybe it's a, a night crawler of some sort, maybe it's a, a deer, but, but none of those things really sound like that when they move in the night, at least to our great knowledge that we had of, of, of nocturnal animals at the time. So we convinced ourselves, it's not an armadillo, it's not a possum, it's not, uh, it's not any of these things, it's not a deer, because it's kind of heavy in the way that it walks, and it's very human-like in the way that it walks. Not to mention, and this is not a joke at all, not to mention that honestly there had been a crazy person that Todd had run off of his property. So this is playing in our mind too, that there was this man who was wandering around the property aimlessly like he had no wits about him and Todd had to get rid of him. I think maybe a couple of times. So we're thinking this could be, this could be crazy train coming to get us or something. I, I didn't know. So we wait and we're thinking, I hope it's Todd. I hope it's not crazy. I hope someone's not going to stab us in the back or something like that. And we sit there and we brace ourselves for what just seemed to be imminent. And all of a sudden we hear a voice that's coming from the distance. And it's Todd's voice. And says, all right, guys, game over. Come on out. Now, it didn't take us long to process the information. If Todd's there, he's not there. So then we had a moment to decide what we were going to do. So here's what happened. I said, you know what? 
we're getting out of here because Todd's out there, something's behind us, and it's very close. It's either crazy man that Todd had to run off of the property, or it's some animal that, that God created just to scare us or attack us, or something's happened. It might be the devil himself. I didn't know, but you can imagine as these young boys, all these things running through our mind, and all we knew is we got to get out of here. So I'm sitting on the front of the four-wheeler. I cut the four-wheeler on. I cut the lights on, and I just floor it to get out of there. I don't care what tree's in my way. I don't care anything. So I gun it. The next thing I know, Worm's not on the four-wheeler anymore. I'm thinking I've left him behind. I'm like, oh no, I've left Worm. He's falling off the four-wheeler. I look in front of me. Worm is in front of the four-wheeler, wide open. He doesn't care what trees he's running into. He doesn't care what bushes he's hopping over or running. He doesn't care about thorns. He doesn't care about any of these things. He just cares about getting out of Dodge. And I'm trying to keep up with him on the four-wheeler, hopping around and doing all these things, and he takes off. And then we go up there, we tell Todd about everything, and he kind of laughs at us. But to this day, we have no clue what it was that inched his way up on us. But we were convinced. We were convinced that it was Todd. We were, we were absolutely convinced that it was something that it wasn't. And that's kind of the moral of the story, right? Sometimes things aren't exactly what they seem. It seemed like it was Todd. It walked like a human. We convinced ourselves that it was a human, but most likely it wasn't at all. And things aren't always what they seem. And we'll just never know the rest of that story. And I don't want to know the rest of that story. But I liken that kind of story to what Jesus is saying when he's giving these protective measures for the church And he says, beware of the false prophets. Beware of them because you'll identify them over time. Maybe not immediately. In one way, I think the immediate context, he's saying, you're going to identify them because I've I've taught you all these things. I mean, Austin asked asked a good question when he put them in our questions for our missional communities when he said, why do you think that Jesus placed this portion of his sermon at the end? Well, it's because he had already taught on all of these foundational truths. He was shaping what it was to be a Christian. He was molding, he was crafting for those followers of Christ what it looked like to be in Christ. He wanted them to understand, you know, that that Christians are blessed when they mourn. They're blessed when they're meek. They're blessed when they make peace. He says, so be a peacemaker. Be someone who's meek. Be someone who's humble. He talks about all these different things such as divorce and such as judgmentalism. And he says, as a Christian, there's a way that you're to walk. There's a manner that you walk that is consistent with your calling. And he's he's expressing this to them. He's, He's really just packaging this for them and saying, just follow what I've constructed for you. And then at the end, he says, but be warned because there will be those who wanna come in and they wanna distort everything that I've taught you. And things may not always seem as they appear because they will come into the church as what? As sheep. You will see them initially and you will think they are sheep. But he says inside they're ravenous wolves. He says you'll know them by their fruits. A, you'll know them by their false teaching compared to Christ's teaching. But additionally, you'll know them by the way that they live their life. Because remember, John Calvin said that no one can counterfeit spirituality in the long run. No one can do that. How can we counterfeit something that requires a supernatural change to maintain? Do you follow what I'm saying here? This is, this is kind of the crux of what Calvin is saying here and the crux of what we, what we kind of derive from Jesus' teaching is that someone can come in and they can look like a sheep, right? Or you can just see someone in life and say, well, they claim to be Christ. They claim to be a sheep. They claim this. And we see fruits, but we don't know if these fruits are indicative of a, of a good fruit or a good root or a diseased root. 
But you can rest assured, though you may not see it at first, at the end of all things, you will know them by their fruits. Because you can't manufacture something that requires a supernatural working to take place. You just can't do it. If I don't have the Holy Spirit, if I don't have the supernatural application and change of the gospel, if I don't have the imputed righteousness of Jesus, I can fake it for a while. But you're talking about something that requires the supernatural to maintain. So they won't maintain it. It's biblical, it's logical. And you will eventually recognize them by their fruits. And this is what Jesus is getting at. So he speaks of these people. These people who come in and position themselves. They try to reveal themselves to be something, but inwardly they are exactly the opposite. Do we not, have we not seen the, the same thing with Bill Cosby? Is it not just really coming to life for us as we see America's dad on the big screen and how he's found guilty of the crimes that he's committed, or at least some of the crimes that he's committed? I mean, that's a, it's a quintessential example of someone who has postured himself and posed himself as something, but on the inside or behind closed doors, something else was going on all the while. Eventually, eventually, you will be found out because you can't manufacture something that requires the supernatural. So if I had a thesis, if I had a driving statement for this today, I would say this. The fruits that we produce are the definitive indicator that substantiate our spiritual position. Let me read that one more time for you. The fruits we produce, the works, the works we produce, or these works should be the byproduct of salvation, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. The fruit we produce are the definitive indicator that substantiate our spiritual position. So we're gonna talk about fruits today. How's your produce? How are your fruits? A simple but still complex discussion found in the text. So there's a primary application. First thing to understand is you will recognize those false prophets by their corrupt teaching. That's obvious. Jesus has said, here's what I'm teaching you. Here's what you subscribe to. Here's what you follow. Someone says anything otherwise, there's your red flag. There's your problem. That's a fruit that you will recognize. And that fruit is indicative of a diseased or bad root. But don't reduce the application of this text to extrospection. Now that's a crazy word. It's the antonym to introspection. Or, or, or to say, don't reduce this text to just looking out towards others. Because I think that's a trap that we can often fall into. I think we can ap- approach this text and just say, well, Jesus is warning us to look out for those who would come in and cause us harm. Those who would come in and pervert sound doctrine and therefore give us a perversion of that to where it's believable or maybe something that's just outright contrary. Remember what we mentioned last week. We talked about easy believism. We talked about personal autonomy, someone coming in saying, you are your own God. Even if they don't say it like that, that might be what they're actually teaching you in essence is that you are the captain of your own ship. You pick yourself up by your own bootstraps, make something of yourself because you are You control your destiny. You are the arbiter. You are the finisher. You are the perfecter of your own faith. Is that not the common thread woven through the fabric of what our culture is teaching us? Make something of yourself. But is there not an element of truth to that? Absolutely. Work hard. Have good ethics. A man who doesn't work shouldn't eat. 
There's something in there about the way a man should conduct himself. So absolutely there's an element of truth in there, but that's what makes it so dangerous. That's what makes it so dangerous is it perverts the truth so that it's still believable and we buy into it and it just chips away the things that are true and it will destroy us. So we don't reduce it to something that's just looking outward and trying to protect ourselves against emotionalism equals truth or, or personal autonomy um, or easy believism. We don't just look to guard against that from someone coming in. But we would be foolish to forget the fact or ignore the fact that just as much as this text calls us to extrospection, it calls us to introspection. You can make a very, very solid argument that all throughout the New Testament, it's made very clear that you need to test yourself. You need to examine yourself to see that you're in the faith. You know, you need to see if the works that you have are a byproduct of faith or otherwise they're dead. Have you read 1 John lately? 1 John is, this is what you need to look at This is your mirror to see if you're in the faith. Do you love one another? How can you, who hates his brother, say that you have love for God? I would say you're a liar. The truth is not in you, right? And so so, so the scripture is very clear that we have to look introspectively and consider what our fruits look like. How's your produce? So you will recognize not just the false teaching of their fruits, but the actions that are characteristic of their root, And here's where it gets a little interesting, right? So back to the text. Not everyone who says to me, here he is talking about those bad fruits that maybe we will or won't see immediately. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. That's not just a Lord, Lord. That's not just I'm having a a simple dialogue with God. It's 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 a profession of his authority, of his allegiance. So here's the scene. You have someone whose life has been expended. They're now standing before God, And what they're standing on, their foundation, are faulty, rotten fruits. That's what they're standing on. They're standing on a foundation that has been built with straw or or stubble or something like that. It's just not going to stand the scrutiny of God's divine judgment. So this person stands before God and says, Lord, Lord, didn't I do these things in your name? I mean, let's be honest. If If you have a coworker that you see casting out demons... If you have a coworker that claims Christ, they're casting out demons, they're prophesying in the name of Jesus, and uh, they're doing all these mighty works, even miraculous works in the name of Jesus. You're probably going to go ahead and resign yourself to the fact that they're in Christ. Because how in the world could someone who's not in Christ do such things? These are the people Jesus is talking about. These are the people that Jesus or God says, I, Jesus is saying that God will reject. He said, you, you've done these things. So then there's this question. Well, that has to mean that, that these things that they were doing was just smoke and mirrors. That there's no real way that there was any kind of supernatural thing that took place. You know, maybe they didn't really cast out a demon. Maybe it was just all in their minds or, 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 or just some, some kind of trickery or illusion. Maybe they didn't really do mighty works. Maybe it was all some way to just pull the wool over everybody's eyes. Maybe like the, the, the Egyptians in Egypt, Pharaoh's Egyptians, maybe it was just tricks, which I'm not saying theirs were tricks, but, but maybe they think that way. But the scripture doesn't give us the freedom to interpret it that way. It just doesn't. So we need to scratch that from our brain. And let me just share with you this, that if we consider 
the complexity of this, if we consider that, okay, there seems to be a, something we've got to sift through, we've got to work through, that these people have clearly done something that's remarkable, but God is still rejecting them, where's the disconnect? Where does this fall through? How do I, how do I reconcile or rationalize in my brain that, that God is rejecting or treating as strangers these people that have done miraculous work in the name of Christ? So I'm gonna spend a few minutes trying to walk through an explanation of how we can understand, interpret, and reconcile this passage to what's happening. Bad fruit can look like good fruit from the outside, right? We understand that. Even those who are outside of Christ make morally upright decisions. I'm not saying their decisions are pleasing to Jesus. I'm not saying that they are credited in some way as meritorious by God the Father. I'm not saying that. I'm saying that even the most vile offender can do something nice for someone else. I have a friend that is not in Christ. I have several friends, but I'm thinking of one particular guy that's not in Christ, and he is one of the nicest men that I've ever known. He'd do anything for anybody. He is genuinely kind. He genuinely cares for people, and it grieves my heart because I think all of this work, all of these fruits are rejected by God because the root is rotten. And you can't tell on the outside that the fruit is bad. You can't tell because it's one of those, the inner core things that's messed up. You can't tell it, so you have to trace it back to the root to see that's where the problem is. And that's what his problem is. So how do you reconcile genuine deeds such as casting out demons with someone who's in Christ or not in Christ? You may want to say, how could they do such a thing if they weren't in Christ? And let me just give you some examples of how these things can happen. Pharaoh had his magicians do supernatural works, but they were not followers of God. And they did supernatural works. Go read the Exodus account, and you will see for yourself that they did actual supernatural things. What about 2 Thessalonians 2.9? Mighty displays of power is how it's mentioned. Those who are not followers of Jesus performed mighty displays of power. And Paul is, in the context, Paul, and check me on this, Paul is basically talking about identifying those who are false. They're, they're, they're offering up these mighty displays of power, but we're not to say they're in Christ. We're not to say they're legit just because there's these mighty displays of power. Some believe that the trickery of the Egyptian magicians was nothing more than smoke and mirrors, the same to be true of those performing wonders in Second Thessalonians. To assert such a thing would be to dismiss the power of the enemy. To dismiss the power of the enemy. Where do we see the enemy's power displayed? I mean, are we not warned in the Bible of the flaming arrows that come, after the, come from the enemy? Way back at the beginning, when the devil had wandered around the earth looking for someone, God says, have you considered my servant Job? And God lengthened the chain on Satan to attack Job. And supernatural things started happening to Job. And it was the power of the enemy. Now, I'm not saying God can't bring devastation or God can't bring destruction. He does that in the Bible too. But in this case, God made provisions for, he made allowances for Satan to act in power on the enemy because Satan is powerful. Let's be honest. Don't be delusional and say, well, he's weak. No, no, (laughs) he's powerful. He's powerful. That's why it's nonsense to play with Ouija boards and to study Wiccan and witchcraft and all this stuff. It's nonsense. It's not games. It's legitimate power that you're exposing yourself to and running a tremendous risk. 
But Job is the primary example among others. Satan acts in power on him. So you can't just say, oh, it's trickery. It's just smoke and mirrors because these people are legitimately doing things. So now let's dig a little bit deeper into our explanation. Bad fruit that presents itself as good is still bad, and here's why. Because it's product or it's produced from a root that is corrupt, i.e., good works outside of Christ are impossible because the main ingredient to the formula is Jesus. And let me flesh this out by way of an illustration, and Charlie helped me out with this yesterday. You have three elements, sodium, chlorine, and oxygen, right? Sodium, chlorine, and oxygen. Put those together, it makes what, Charlie? Bleach? <laughs> yeah, speak on our level, okay, okay? <laughs> Bring the nerd them down a little bit, right? So, so it makes bleach, right? It makes bleach, but if you just take, if you just take uh, sodium and uh, chlorine, is it? You just have salt, right? You just have salt. It, you, you just take those two elements rather than the three, and you have something completely other, completely different than bleach. But you add that critical element, and you have bleach, now, here's what the illustration actually illustrates. Let's say that you have someone that has a pretty good theology. They have a pretty good Christology. They know a bunch of facts that are accurate, that are correct about Jesus. Oh, yeah, I know that Jesus died, and I believe he rose again. They have a good theology. They believe that God rules and reigns over all things, that God created and he sustains all things. They have a solid theology. They believe these things. They believe these facts that they've heard. And that's placed on this side. And then you have on this side this idea of, of works. And you look at their life and you say, well, they have a good orthodoxy. And then over here you see works. Man, they, 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 they give to people their time, their money, their possessions. They, they, they pray. You know, maybe they, they, they are ethical at work. Maybe they're not trying to cheat people. Wow, there seems to be some works there. Maybe they're performing miracles. Maybe, just maybe, they're casting out demons. Wow, you see this over here. Wow, there's a good orthodoxy. There seems to be a good orthopraxy. But guess what happens when you just have the two elements standing before God? He says, away from me, you are a stranger. I never knew you. And how in the world does that happen? Because the element that is required for fruits to be acceptable to God is Jesus, is Lordship submission. Do you understand that term? Lordship submission. I can know a bunch of facts. I can read a bunch of theology books. And I can go and do a lot of good works because I'm a nice guy. But I stand before God completely empty and destitute as a stranger and as an enemy who is hostile towards God and who will be cast into hell. Why? Because the one element that was prerequisite for being acceptable in the eyes of God is Jesus and the submission to his lordship. And this is the phrase that we've heard all of our life. Many of you, or not many of you necessarily, but many people want Jesus as a savior, but what? They don't want him as their lord. They don't want him as their lord. Why submit to him when you can be your own God? Why submit to him when you can have things your way? but you can still be heralded by the culture and by the church even as a Christian. There are those who have a good theology and Christology. They know facts about God and Christ. They may even have works in their life that from the outside looking in, we assume that they are in Christ. But the spiritual mortar that holds the bricks of orthodoxy and orthopraxy together 
It's lordship submission. Fruit can appear ripe on the outside, but it can be rotten to the core. So let me ask you, have you ever been deceived by fruit? And I mean literal fruit. It's such a, it's such a great illustration that Jesus uses, and he just kind of teases this out. I love bananas. I love a banana that's nice and brown on the outside because that means it's nice and mushy on the inside, and I like that. A little crunchy peanut butter on a mushy banana. Don't judge me. I see you. It's so tasty. It's so tasty to me. But on the outside, you're thinking, that's a nasty banana. It's got to be rotten because it's got some brown spots all over it. No, 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 no. Like a good guitar just ages and gets better, right? But what about an apple? Sarah likes to buy these uh, apples from Aldi, these red delicious apple, or they say they're red delicious apples, but sometimes they taste weird. Sometimes they taste bad, and sometimes I'll cut into them, and they're just nasty. They're clearly rotten. But on the outside, they don't look like it. I think they go through this machine, and someone just paints them with this glossy something, and they could be like blackest pitch on the inside with worms, you know, kind of doing a, doing a dance in the middle, and they still look great. So we're deceived by fruit. I mean, we know this. Jesus teases out this illustration for a purpose. So then my question is, have you ever been deceived by the fruits of someone else? Because those who would come in and pose as sheep are deceivers. And there's two types of deceivers, generally speaking. There's those who deceive others, and there's those who deceive themselves. There's those who deceive others. There's those who deceive themselves. There are those who might come into the church, and they have an agenda. Their agenda is to distort and disrupt the truth that is being spread in the church. They're there to distort the gospel by maybe preaching a prosperity gospel. They're gonna take truth and they're gonna taint it just a little bit. They're gonna tweak it just a little bit here so that it's still believable and it's not so, so far off from what you've heard, almost so that you can't recognize the nuance. And then there's those that would deceive themselves. And this is where it's really scary for me. Because I'm sure all of you are thinking, well, I'm not set to deceive anybody. I mean, I can look, as far as I know, everyone here that I've had interaction with, I don't think that you're here to deceive me. I don't hear you espousing some kind of false doctrine that you're trying to infiltrate and, 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 and do all of those things. I don't, I, don't, I don't sense that. But then the real question is, are you deceiving yourself? Have you fallen victim to self-deceit or self-delusion? Because you believe that you have this great orthodoxy and you believe that you have this great orthopraxy, but when you try to put them together, when you try to fuse them together, like two bricks, you have no mortar. And the mortar is lordship submission. And maybe, if it's not in this room, it's definitely somewhere else that we've fallen victim to self-delusion and you're the second type of deceiver, a deceiver of self. Many will say to me, Lord, 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 did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus is essentially saying, God will say, you have deceived yourself. Maybe you've deceived others, but in some cases, you've deceived yourself. You actually think that because you did these things, devoid of a relationship with Jesus, devoid of the, of the righteousness of Jesus, you actually think that these things are gonna be acceptable to me when God has given one standard, and that's Jesus and his gospel. This is scary to me. Because this is what it means, that it's possible for you to come to the end of your life thinking that you've actually finished strong when in fact you've missed it altogether in the worst possible way. This is the reality that we're facing in the text. So we can't just spin our wheels with extrospection, with looking out towards others and saying, hmm, I hear something there, because we do that a lot. 
We like to think ourselves these mighty pillars and protectors of the church. We have a good theology. Look at my orthopraxy. Look at these things. And I'm going to be the great defender of the church. These people are coming in. I hear this. I question this. I'm going to question everything they say. But do you ask yourself the question, do I have genuine lordship submission as the mortar that holds the bricks of orthodoxy and orthopraxy together? It's a scary thought to me. The fruit that passes inspection is the fruit that is born out of the gospel. This is what Jesus says. Listen, he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, went to the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does what? The will of my Father. There's the distinction. Not everyone, not everyone. He's drawn a line of distinction. He's, he's shown some limitation. There are those who will say, Lord, Lord, I did this in your name. And he will say, well done, enter into my rest. There are those, but who are those people? And those are the ones who do the will of the Father. Well, it gets, if your brain works like mine, it's a little confusing there too because you're thinking, but how do you, how do you know? I mean, all these people were, were seeking to do things in the will of God. We did things in the name of Jesus. Is that, not what, is that not the will of God revealed? I mean, I'm asking you, church, is it not that you would go out and in Jesus' name, whether I eat or whether I drink or whatever I, whatever I do, do all for the glory of God, and you go and you change someone's tire for the glory of God. You know, maybe, maybe, maybe us husbands, we go home and our wife takes a nap and we just wanna clean up stuff so that they don't even have to think about worrying about that. Not that it's their job, but maybe it's something that they, they do mostly and you just wanna take care of stuff. You know, what, what if, don't hold me to that, Sarah. What if, what if, you can't laugh when I'm making serious points now. Okay, so that's my fault. So is that not the will of God? That we would do things for Jesus' sake? Is that not the will of God? Yeah, so how do you differentiate? How do you discern? But they say they're doing things in Jesus' name. Here's why this is rejected. All right, and I explained it with the brick and the mortar and the, and the, and the cool science-y terms and all that fun stuff with the elements. But here it is. Here's where the rubber meets the road as I explain it. So why are some who say, Lord, Lord, turned away as strangers? Because their salvation becomes a works-based salvation. And when you think about it, can there be any greater offense than thinking that your surety by which you stand in the presence of God is built on the kingdom that you've built. Could there be anything more offensive? It says no thank you to the atonement. It says no thank you to the righteousness. And it says no thank you to the work of Jesus. And it says I will, I will build my foundation and on this I will stand. My battery's down to 5%. <laughs> It is the will of God that the gospel would change our life so that the fruits we produce are the byproduct of that change. The reason a person who does, does everything in the name of Jesus but is rejected and cast away is because they're relying on their own merit for eternity. And what is God's will? God's will is that your merits would be built on Christ's righteousness. The fruits you produce are fruity, are good, are acceptable because they are filtered through the righteousness of Jesus. And when we stand before God and we make the cut as those who actually do say, Lord, Lord, and he says, well done, enter into my rest, it will be because all of these fruits that are recognized are recognized as good because the root is good. Fruits that don't pass inspection are characteristic of a much bigger problem. 
The root system is diseased and therefore cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, let me just go back to verse 19 for a second. What did Jesus say if the bad tree, if the, if the bad tree is producing bad fruit? He says it's cut down and thrown into the fire. And you better believe he's preaching on hell. And then he says later, he says, I will say, depart from me, you workers of iniquity, you workers of lawlessness. He's speaking of separation from him in an eternity of hell. This isn't a very popular part of a sermon, uh, any, any pastor's preaching, but it's what Jesus teaches. And from what I've understood, studying, Jesus teaches more on hell than he does on love. So we need to address it. He says, away from me, I never knew you. So what does this mean? It means this, that it's not questioning the omniscience of God. It's not saying, oh, there's something that God doesn't know. It's not talking about that. This is reminiscent of uh, both Genesis and Romans chapter 8. Let me just share Romans chapter 8, verses 29 through 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he glorified. What does that foreknew mean? I'll tell you what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that he had knowledge of would it make any sense for Paul to say, well, God just knew things? That's not what he's saying, especially in a salvific context when he says, no, God placed his affections upon you. It's the same word that is used for Adam knowing Eve. There's an intimate connection between Adam and Eve that is representative of Christ's intimate connection with his church. And when God says he foreknew, it didn't mean that beforehand he had knowledge of these things. It means that God set his affections on salvifically. God predestined, God called, God brought you out for salvation. So when God says, away from me, I never knew you, he meant, I never called you. I never elected you. I never knew you in a saving sense, if that's more palatable for you. I never knew you as my child. You were never a part of my family. You don't have Christ's righteousness. You are someone who builds their house on wood, hay, and stubble. Your foundation is yourself, and the kingdom that you've built is your own. And that's what lost people do. And he says, you are strangers to me. Is this not the words that Paul used when he spoke to the Ephesians? He says, before you were in Christ, you were strangers to the covenants of promise. If they would have died as strangers, the result would have been the same. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness and iniquity, for I never knew you. So here's the application with 3% battery. If a text like this doesn't drive us towards introspection, then chances are you're a victim of self-deceit and self-delusion. So here are some questions I think we should end by asking ourselves. Consider the root behind all of the good works of your life. Consider that. And ask yourself the questions that are going to follow. You say you go to church. If I were to say, hey, what is it in your life as a work that substantiates you being a Christian? You may say, well, I attend church. This is a popular answer. So my question is, or the question you should ask yourself is, do I attend a local gathering because Christ has given me a love for him and his bride? Or do I attend a local gathering because it's the cultural normative thing to do living in the Bible Belt? 
Do I attend a local gathering because to do otherwise would to be more ta- would be more taboo than neglecting to gather with the saints? If your answer to your own question regarding your validation as I go to church is one of the last two questions, then you need to dig a little bit deeper and see if there's a faulty root issue. What if you say, well, I'm faithful to my spouse. Are you faithful to your spouse because marriage is the image of Christ's relationship to the church? And you will fight to the end to avoid marriage that, uh, to, to avoid uh, misrepresenting or marriage, marring that image? Or are you faithful to your spouse because although you want to experience greener pastures, you don't want to become a statistic and therefore your pride and principles keep you at bay? If your answer is secondary, and that's the pattern of your life, let me qualify by saying that's the pattern of your life, you may need to check the root. You say, I give to others. I give them my time, my money, my attention. Well, do you give to others because Christ has placed in you a spirit of generosity and love? Do you give to others because you have been given much in Christ and you want to express the love of Jesus through giving? Or do you give to others because you want to be considered greatest among your peers and you want to feel better about yourself? If your answer to yourself is the latter, then you need to check the root. Because you might have great orthodoxy, you might have great orthopraxy, but you lack the mortar that brings them together. You lack that element that turns salt into bleach. You lack those things. You say, I read my Bible. Do you read the Bible because you realize the root and joy, the root of joy and peace hinge on every word of God? Do you read the Bible because you must know more of the Savior that's brought you out of the domain of darkness and into the kingdom of his beloved son? Or do you read the Bible to become equipped to win an argument? And again, I'm talking about patterns. I'm not talking about moments. I've definitely read my Bible to win an argument. I've definitely read my Bible to be right and my motives were messed up. I've I've definitely done those things, but I mean a pattern of behavior in your life. If this is the telltale sign of your life. I pray, I go to Christian movies, I encourage people, I help out strangers from time to time. I even witness. Let's just say you cast out demons, you work mighty works. So what? So what if the answer to your motive is building your own kingdom? So how do you respond to and how do you feel about your own sin? Does it grieve your heart? Because that's an indication of the Holy Spirit that has not only entered into you, but has sealed you for the day of redemption. Do I have a desire to become more like Jesus no matter the cost? And maybe that develops with spiritual maturity. I get that. But the sentiment needs to be there, I believe. Do I count all things as lost compared to knowing Jesus? Are my works a display of the favor of God, the favor of God that he's lavished on me in Christ, or are my works an attempt to gain favor from Christ? At the end of all things, church, those who deceive with false fruits may be successful in fooling the world around them. They may even fool themselves, but let this be a sobering reminder to all of us. Okay, here it is. Sober up. That God will make the final judgment. I can fool you and you can fool me. And maybe the time of your life comes to an end before I can actually recognize that these fruits that seem good can't be determined on the outside. And maybe I can't yet see the root, but at the end of all things, God does because it says, for I never knew you. That God will make the final judgment. And his judgments are exact and they're right. 
So we must never go accustomed to the comfort found in the affirmation and the validation of men. And of course, I'm preaching to myself. For the teenager that goes to the youth pastor and says, I just don't know if I'm in Christ. And he says, well, did you mean it when you prayed that prayer? What a foolish way to counsel someone. Because we can't rely on the affirmation of men, even the clergy, to give me affirmation of only that which God can, that are evidenced by fruit. Test to see that you're in Christ. I'm not trying to plant seeds of doubt in anyone here today. That's the Spirit's job. Or I'm not trying to shame anyone. That's the Spirit's job. But it may be that doubt leads someone here or somewhere else to true life. Because doubt can either be your slave master or your salvation. Let me say what I mean by that as we close. I think it's good to doubt from time to time. You're not doubting the power of God. You're not doubting uh, the, the, the person of God. You're not doubting the works of Jesus. I don't mean any of that. But I think it's good from time to time that you come face to face with a text like this or many others. And it causes you deep, great introspection. And you say, God, what matters most is that I find validation in your word. And that I go to places like 1 John, be careful, it will ruin you. Go to 1 John and you're like, okay, I have to have this in my life. I have to have this in my life. And if you don't, then the root might be the issue. And so doubt can be a slave master to you. And you might be in Christ and you just worry all the time. I think there's a problem there. But there are times that doubt can lead you to find what you need to find, your peace, your rest, your joy, your comfort and hope in the scriptures and the promises of God. And if you find it there, then doubt is your salvation. And I don't mean you've become a Christian at that point. I mean that you have found the answers that you need in Jesus. But finally, there's a third option as far as, val- uh, as, far as uh, doubt being your salvation. It might be that someone here is saying, I have orthodoxy, I have orthoproxy, but I'm missing that mortar. I'm missing that element in the middle. And so the doubt that's risen up in you now says, I'm gonna take you to the scriptures and I'm gonna take you to where Jesus gives you the instruction. He gives you the framework for what it is to be in him. And if you're not in Christ and you find Christ, or he finds you rather, then doubt becomes your salvation in that sense. You understand what I'm saying? Not that it's in addition to the gospel or anything like that, but in a sense, doubt has led you to where the gospel has found you and given you life. Let's pray.